Welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. Enjoy. There's 23 million people struggling with addiction. Whatever your answer is. Lift the shame and stigma of addiction. Don't choose anything that will jeopardize yourself. Look, you can face this, even though you think you can't, you can. So find your own recovery story, own it, embrace it, work through it. Each and every one of us matters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. On today's show, we have Caitlin Votrino. No T, Caitlin. Caitlin. Yep. On today's episode, we have Caitlin Votrino. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a mouthful. Is it? A little bit. I think most names are a mouthful. I hate saying my own name. Every time I do the intro, I'm like, I'm your host, Chris West. And there's a little part in the back of my brain that goes, <laughs> weird. <laughs> That's weird. I think when we're forced to talk about ourselves, it can be a little weird. Yeah, just even saying, I'm your host. It's like, oh, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Socially awkward. Yeah. Even personally. It's okay. You are the new director of the APG. Mm-hmm. Is organization or after school program? What so, is? Um, we are the alternative peer group. So it's a group. Mm-hmm. And really, we're we're a drop in center for um, teens that have substance abuse disorder that are seeking recovery. Are actually, excuse me, that are in recovery. We are not a treatment center. Um, we don't provide any any clinical anything here. But uh, we provide different opportunities for any adolescents, which are fourteen to twenty two. And we have various activities here. Um, and really, we're just trying to cultivate an environment that um, encourages people, you know, or kids 14 to 22, um, you know, cultivate an environment where they want to stay sober. You know, it's I think it's hard enough to stay sober and find different activities to do as an adult, let alone as a teenager. Um, completely agree. Yeah. Like, so we try to, we try to set those activities up for them. So they have a one-stop shop, one place to come and kind of get, um, different ideas of what they want to do. So you're a person in long-term recovery. I am. Uh, how long? So four years, four years, four years, uh, without a drink or a drug or any mood altering, mind altering substances. Do you know the catalyst of like, what made you want to change? Like what clicked? Did you try it before? So uh, relapse is a big part of my story. Okay. Um, my first um, exposure to recovery was in uh, December of 2005. And my current sobriety date is July 15th of 2015. Mm-hmm. So I had a long road of in and out of recovery um, before I finally, I think it was just the perfect combination of desperation And, um, I was really, really, really beat up and tired and I couldn't find anybody to co-sign my stuff anymore. I couldn't, I, I have this like life or cars. I mean, co-sign life, co-sign the manipulation and the, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah. Like we, you know, yeah, I I, I understand. Yeah. So, and then, you know, I have this. I actually got it from a friend of mine in recovery, but um, he says it beautifully. We couldn't pull a rabbit out of the hat anymore. Mm. You know, I always managed to kind of pull off these magic tricks to keep my my using and drinking, you know, to keep it going. And I finally ran into a wall where that wasn't possible anymore. Mm. 
and it was a total blessing. Yeah. And it was like just the stars aligned, you know, my mom was willing to, you know, sign one more check for one more treatment center. And I, um, walk, pulled up to the door of we care, which is, um, right across the street from where we're at now. And it's not your, you know, traditional treatment center. There are no counselors with, you know, big letters after their name, you know, APGHTCH, you yeah. know, these massive credentials. LMFT. That, yeah. Like, you know, and, and I think you think, okay, this person has enough schooling and they've got the secret, you mm-hmm. know, and when in fact this particular place is very old school and it's the power of one person in recovery talking to another person in recovery and through experience and experience alone. And, um, so like very peer related, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very peer related. Um, and before peer recovery support was even a thing, you know, they've been doing this for 50 years. They've been open. Really? Mm-hmm. I have to get somebody from there over here. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately that's what saved my life, you know, because I, I didn't go in there with any idea or expectation that somebody knew the secret in there. I just knew that if I, I just had this moment where I knew that if I didn't go there, I was going to die. Well, I, I, I often run into this. It's something I think about all the time. It's like, I do it with music. I do it with literally everything. Even when I drive my car, like I'll pass under a bridge and make a wish or like always looking for that secret that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious on it's something I'm working on too is like just letting life be life. Like there is no shortcut secret. There's no simple equation uh, that's going to fix or make anything any more comfortable other than your own personal like relaxation. I think the idea and you hear this all the time, you know, almost to where it, it seems trite, but it's, it's learning to love the moment. It's learning to like be here right now, like here we are in this, you know, in the studio talking to each other, sharing our experiences. Like this is what it's all about. This is the secret to life. And so it's hard to grasp mm -hmm. though. It's hard not to think about like 10 minutes from now or whether or not this is going to be a good podcast. I think, and I'm like, so I've labeled myself a feel good junkie now, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I always have been, I, believe I always will be. So I'm always looking for, like, I want to feel good at any cost, which means I don't necessarily like feeling bad, mm-hmm. but in order to appreciate the, the feeling good, you have to feel bad, you know? So life. you have to, and you can't enjoy the sweet unless you've had some sour. Right. And, but it's also changing perspective too. Like even as far as to say, like, it's not really good or bad. It's just what I happen to be experiencing. And it's the experience that's going to get me to the next one. Getting back to, to you, um, so you went into the, this final, you know, hopefully final treatment with no expectations, no, yeah. I'm, I'm going to find the secret to being okay. Yeah, and I, I think another factor of that was I went in there thinking, like, I've already been here before, this isn't going to work for me this time. Okay, so you know, there not only was there no expectations for good, there there was some expectations for bad. Right, like I, I think I was... Or at least waste of time. I think I was completely apathetic. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't care one way or another. Like I just didn't want to be doing what I had been doing for the previous two years. And 
when I say two years, that's only because for whatever reason before that two years, I had something that stopped me, whether it was another treatment center or, you know, um, CPS cases or. Again, you keep mentioning things that I, I think about on a regular basis and I'm sorry to no. get into tangents, but it's how it goes where you want something so bad, you're not going to get it. You, you think too positively or too negatively, it's right there in that sweet spot where it's like, I care, but I could take it or leave it where you, you tend to get what you want, mm-hmm. in my opinion. If, I think if you put too much of energy into any one thing, good or bad, you want it too much. Things go bad. You have expectations. Mm-hmm. And expectations are rarely met. Yeah, so that another, you know, they say resen- or con- um, expectations are resentments under construction. Yeah. Right. So like, but I think again, it's when I take control of the situation, when, when I kind of go in there for the experience and not the result, then things just go mm-hmm. and they're positive. Yeah. No matter what to me, you know, you're not forcing it. Right. You're not forcing it. You're not, you're not running on self-will. You're not, um, because I believe that those are the things that build the expectation and you paint this grandiose picture of what you think it should look like when ultimately the universe or God or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. your thing is, has different plans, Yeah, you know? And mm-hmm. so you're kind of swimming upstream, so to say. I have a problem with expectations. Mm-hmm. I constantly, this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. This is how I want it to be. Why the hell is it not doing that? and again like i think it's because we have this idea of what is good and what is bad right rather than just what is and i also think that we have this idea of what we think is going to be good for me Mm -hmm. or us whatever and um we have no idea most of the time we don't and and really the other thing that i that i've realized a lot lately in my journey in recovery is that um sometimes bad stuff happens to me for the result of somebody else's journey so it really had nothing to do with me in the first place. I just happened to be involved in the situation because my life touches theirs. Sure. Collateral but, damage, so to speak. But more so like. Almost like a ripple in a wave. Yeah. Like it's just we're all connected, you know. Yeah. And but when you watch somebody have an experience and grow from it or or to what it seems like they're not growing. But in fact, so take my situation, for example, like everybody who was involved in putting me into that last recovery center um, got the brunt of a very mean, I was pissed, Mm -hmm. you know, like one more time, everybody's conspiring around me to put in, you know, to put me in this treatment center. But as a result of them doing that, right. And I'm treating them so badly in the midst of it. Here I am today Mm -hmm. with four years sober, you know, executive director of alternative peer group, um, Three beautiful children. I'm married, you know, sitting here doing a podcast on recovery. I mm-hmm. mean, if I would have sat down or if they would have sat down that day and wrote a list of what they thought should come out of that experience, don't you think they would have sold themselves short? Probably. Right? Probably. I mean, when I got laid off from my last job, which was at a, you know, treatment facility, mm-hmm. if you would have told me then that, this moment right now, I'd be running a kitchen in less than two months. You know, I told you you're crazy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I 
somewhat understand. Yes, I would. If someone would have said, write down what you would like to happen in the next two months, it would be like, let's just get another job. Right. Let's just get through this. Right. Not let's go someplace you've never been before and flourish. When I see somebody's podcast or I read a book or I see a TED talk or things like my brain doesn't grab onto like too much information. I don't retain it very well, but there are snippets that really stay with me like till the end of time. Like that resonate. Yeah. Like just that I just get, I understand. And sometimes I won't even remember them until like a year later where I'll be able to like practically apply whoever was, you know, talking about that subject and I'll be able to practically apply it to a situation or experience in my life. And I'm like, oh my God, that's what they meant, you know? Can you give me an example? So like Brene Brown has an amazing um, special on Netflix and she's written tons of books and specifically um, there's a couple things, but one thing that really resonates is she talks about engineering smallness in our life. You know, and that's what we do. We engineer smallness in our life so that we can feel better or feel like we're doing better or when in turn we're just selling ourselves short from all the wonderful experiences that like the universe puts in front of us. I guess I'm not understanding what constructing constructing smallness means. So like engineering smallness, like we specific, so writing that small list that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Of all the, you just wanted another job, mm-hmm. right? So we, we oh, it's limiting. Right. Like we, we engineer ourselves to be... Limited. Yeah. Like when we're capable of so much more. I understand. But so much fear and so much, you know, can I do it? Am I capable of it? Like what am I going to look like? What are people going to say if I fail? What are, you know, and because of those things, being so scared to be vulnerable, quote unquote, I guess. And Yeah, vulnerability is a wicked it's thing. It's a, yeah. And that's... Brene Brown is like a, she's a scientific researcher on emotions. Yeah. So like she'll research vulnerability and hope and. There's a male equivalent that I'm very much into. And who's that? People are going to hate me for saying this, but his name is Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Why have I heard heard that name before? He does not have a very good reputation, but it's a skewed. Okay. Um, I mean, it really, isn't that just people's opinion? Exactly. Like if it reaches you to your parts of your soul that like are cracking you open, like that's the whole point. I spent uh, an entire summer listening to almost 400 hours of yeah. him just speaking. And I think like too, like eventually what happens is, is like you, it's like a buffet eventually, right? Like you're, you're, you're grabbing all this information and you're soaking it all up. But like eventually after you get through that initial, you know, experience, you'll take what you want and you'll leave the rest. That's how I feel about religion in general. Or I mean, yeah. spirituality in general. Me too. I take what I want and leave all the... But that's the beauty of it. That's, yeah. You get to cultivate and design your own ideals in, in whatever you want. I also think that's... So you you do that with your own personality, but mm-hmm. it's a little it's a little harder to get rid of the ones you don't want. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's all motivated too by like what other people think and what our parents did and what our parents think about us. And oh, that's scary. You know, like to to tell yourself like, hey, you're completely responsible for how you are and how you feel and how you mm-hmm. perceive and. You can be whatever you want. There's a lot of responsibility in that, and it's scary, and at least in my opinion. Absolutely, and I think that um, 
when you really grasp onto that concept, it's exhausting oh, yeah. <laughs> because then you start to micromanage and analyze every thought that comes into your brain and it can be really overwhelming yeah. because then you realize, then you realize how much of a newborn in you, a newborn you are in the process of like quote unquote awakening. Yeah. When, so I, I struggle with panic attacks oh. and uh, I've had some very, very bad ones. And every time I've had like one of these, I mean, they last for months. Mm-hmm. Like one will just take me out for a good three months. I'll be useless. I still go to work. I still do whatever. But every time I come out of it, I'm like an entirely different person. And you have to like reconstruct this. Okay, who am I now? Like after this experience. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, it can be exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think it's expectation. Yeah. You know what I mean? I have this expectation about how I have to act and who I have to be and what that looks like. And it's, we have, and we have outside world responsibilities. Like I have to show up for work. I have to be kind. I have to be courteous. I have to be, you know, act a certain way when I'm in, you know, in order to get my paycheck, like there are lots of variables, but, but what makes me think about that when you say about panic attacks is like, we, it has such a bad connotation behind it. Like I have panic attacks, right? But like, are they panic attacks or are they just, oh, yeah. or, or are they just a rearrangement of ideals? No, no. These are like, I'm dying. Like right now I'm like when I have one, mm-hmm. uh, cause I've had this conversation with my dad and he's like, are you sure you're just not like excited? Yeah, no. You're like, I know the difference. <laughs> uh, because he, he deal he struggles with the same thing. Um, and it's something we talk about often cause he like, he went to go camping for two days by himself mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, I kind of had like a little bit of panic while I was going out there. And he's like, I stopped and it's like, no, this isn't panic. It's excitement. But any, any foreign feeling to somebody, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but I feel like any foreign feeling to somebody like me, if I get too happy, it turns into panic Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. If I get too sad, it turns into panic. If I have any extreme amount of not feeling how I normally feel, it'll send me into a spiral. Well, and that's, that's really like by it's by, you know, biological, it's, Mm -hmm. it's chemicals in your brain that are being released because your body doesn't know the difference between overwhelming good and overwhelming bad. Sure. So like any flux of emotion like that is just sending you over the edge. Mm -hmm. So meditation. That's what I keep hearing. Meditation, 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 you know, and like even five minutes a day will make such a huge difference. It's, it's literally everyone I've ever talked to about this says you have to meditate. Mm-hmm. And it's harder than, it, it's hard to get into, in my opinion. In medita- to meditation? Yeah. So do you know what meditation actually is? The art of meditation? I mean, I could, uh, I want to say yes. Like so the, the practice of shutting down. Right. The incoming and outgoing signal. It's like a reset. It is in a way. But it's like people, clearing out the recycle bin on your computer. Kind of. I, I think that's eventually what happens. I think there's a lot that can happen in meditation. Or defragging it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a computer girl, so. Um, somebody else out there got that. <laughs> um, but somebody explained it to me this way. That the actual art of meditation, because people, a lot of people have this idea that like, oh, I can't, I can't sit and think of nothing. Like I don't do it right. You know? Oh, I've done it. But the whole idea of meditation, the art of meditation is to sit with your thoughts and 
So you meditate, you think of like, you know, whatever you want to think of, like just a blank space. You can think of a certain serene place that you feel like you'd be comfortable in, like whatever it is. And then you'll have like these thoughts that are like, oh my God, I got to do the laundry. I have to pick up the kids at noon. And oh my God, did I do that email? And oh my God, I have to cook for like 75,000 people tomorrow and all the things that we think about, right? And then you stop and you're like, oh, you know, like I, I'm not meditating, right? So mm-hmm. you like, and then you're like, okay, so think about that blank space again. But that's actually meditation to lose yourself in your thoughts and all your daily activities and to go back to that spot and then bring yourself in. That is meditation. Okay. I understand. So, but a lot of people don't, don't get that, that that's sitting with your busy thoughts. So what I'm gathering is that the practice itself is, would, would, would the goal then be to have less of those racing thoughts? I think eventually. Yeah. I think eventually the more time that you're able to bring yourself into that space, that safe space, that like, space of calm and peace and serenity or nothingness, whatever you choose it to be, that's essentially what the goal is. Because I think it has a lot to do with effort. It's like just the act of sitting there and taking the amount of time has some type of reaction in the body where it's like, okay, you're doing this for your well-being. Your body's like, okay, then let's be well. Oh, yeah. And the intention for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And I think that that's, it's the... It's the ritual of it that really is changing. And I, I believe it gives you some sort of like self-confidence, self-esteem. I think, I think that's what keeps me. It's not because I don't want to. It's I'm very bad at ritual, like doing things the same every day. Mm-hmm. My, my girlfriend gets on, on me all the time about it. She's like, oh, it's nine o'clock. You know, I'm going to bed. I'm going to go brush my teeth. I'm like, well. I'm going to stay up for 15 more minutes and then I'll brush my head or I'll stay up in another two hours and then brush my head. It's like there's no, I don't have, I'm not a consistent like. Discipline? I'm not very disciplined. <laughs> this is, yeah, we'll put it that way. I don't know if I'd like to put it out there. I probably would, but you've heard it. But Fair I, enough. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I think it's just, I don't, and I don't necessarily think that rituals have to be at the exact same time as much as just making the attempt to do the act. Okay. Without letting the day go by. So like it could be any time, you know, but we're procrastinators. So we're like, we think about it. And when we think about it, we should do it right then. Right. That's Mm. what we should do. Yeah. But instead we're like, oh, wait, you know, like you're talking about, oh, wait a little bit. And then the day gets away from us. And then next thing you know, I'm on my pillow exhausted. And And then you hate yourself. And then I'm like, and then I get myself more, you know, like, so yeah, I mean. I'm like, I. You suck. Yeah. And then I ridicule myself the whole day. Yeah. And what? And then what happens is that's a process that happens over, it's a cycle, and right? It's, and then it's layered. All right. And so then I've gone two weeks without meditating. So instead of giving myself lots and lots of grace yeah. and being really happy with myself, whether I do it or not, mm-hmm. and then it motivates me to do it the next day. But I tell you what, when I do start motivating or when I do start meditating every day, that starts a cycle too, to where like I feel some sort of result from it. So I continue to do it. But Hmm. then I'm the person where I think I can live off of yesterday's meditating. Yeah. You're like, I meditated super hard yesterday. (laughs) I'm like, ah, I don't need to do it today again. But then, and then thus starts the process of not meditating again. So it just, but yeah, we've strayed away. We have. So when, when did you start working in recovery? 
working in recovery, I think since the beginning. Okay. I think since the very, my, I am in a 12 step fellowship and um, service is a big deal in 12 step fellowships. I mean, it, it's really like the heartbeat of, of those, you know, those, that. And so I was kind of pushing into it. And then I realized that I really loved it and, um, it got me out of myself and out of my head. And, um, I was dealing with a lot of repercussions of my drinking and using and a lot of wreckage as they would call it. And so in the midst of trying to clean all that up, um, a lot of it was really painful and emotional and what kept me going was service. Hmm. So it was, it was a big part of my, my sustainable recovery. It seems to be the trend. Mm-hmm. Services is huge. I mean, but if you look at everywhere in life, you know, every religion, almost every nonprofit, um, it's all around being of service. Yeah. You know, and so there ha- that it, sa- it says something, you know, that they people implement service everywhere in their life. People want to be of service. It makes them feel good. I hope so. Most people, most yeah. people, it doesn't feel good. They don't do it. Where was the first step into working? Because you had to get to this director of operations somehow. I see where you're going with this. Okay, so um, so I originally, I was at a meeting and I ran into um, a lady by the name of Emily Sadler and she has a um, staffing company that she started in Scottsdale, Arizona that um, was really geared towards people in recovery and helping people find second chance work. So she was employing people mm-hmm. in the recovery in community mm-hmm. in Scottsdale. And she came out here on a, on a, just a social trip and we met at a meeting and she was inspired to start um, her staffing company here in Las Vegas. And this being um, a majority of her stuff in Scottsdale is food and beverage related. And Vegas is like the food and beverage capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So she was inspired to start it here. And, and we have a huge need for second chance employment here in Las Vegas. It's really, 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 really hard to find employment, especially in the food and beverage industry. If you Is have, it? yeah. I thought the food and beverage industry was the easiest to get into. Well, if you want to get any legit job, and and by that I mean like any really good paying job here on the strip or, you mm, know, in you casinos, you cannot be a felon. Yeah, I know this. So, and we have a lot of felons in the recovery community. I mean. Yeah. And so, and and you're talking like a DUI, I mean, it, somebody went out and started driving drunk. Not even necessarily that they have a drug and alcohol problem, but they got in trouble, I which mean, resulted I, in a felony. I've met people who have had seizures and got felony DUIs for mm-hmm. not even drinking mm-hmm. and now cannot get mm-hmm. work like on the strip. Right. And so it, it limits their capacity to make money, mm-hmm. which is... And they have families to feed and, you know, bills to pay, court fines. I mean, the list goes on about all the things that, you know, financially we have to do, especially when we're trying to recover from all the wreckage, right? Mm-hmm. Emily was a, she had felony DUIs, two children, young children to raise and um, found it really impossible to get work in Arizona as well. So that's why she was inspired to start this company. So anyway, she, she brought it out to Las Vegas and... Um, she asked me, I was just inspired by her story. I grabbed her after the meeting. I asked her who she was. She walked into the meeting in like this white dress mm-hmm. and it was almost like an angelic. And the, the 
aura that she gave was very powerful to me. It's like, like a movie scene. It was. It actually was when I, upon, you know, reflection. Time slowed down. Yeah, she was brighter than everyone yeah, yeah, else. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she had that vibe she, about her. So I was curious and I'm social butterfly, you know. And, um, And so I was curious. So I just kind of struck up a conversation with her and. Um, started talking to her about what she did and she told me why she was here and um, I was really interested. I just immediately was drawn to the service the service aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I asked her if I could be of service or help in any way and at first, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom at this point. I just had my son. He was about six months old and, you know, Paul was working his butt off at Freedom House and um, not making much money. And so, uh, you're like, Oh, I'll do it. Yeah. I was like, maybe I can serve or do something. And and I have some experience in the service industry a little bit. So I was thinking I could do it, you know? And she's like, well, why don't you, um, I'll pay you $10 a person to recruit people. And so I was like, Oh, cool. You know, like I don't even really have to go work. I can just recruit people. And what I found was, is I, I had a gift. I had a gift of recruiting people. You were like hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know I was going to be good at it. Mm. That was what, that was the intriguing part of it. And upon reflection, how it seemed divinely inspired, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I was really good at it. I don't know how I pulled it off, but I I filled the order. And Mm -hmm. I filled the order with good people. And I would say 85 to 90% of my staff was in recovery. Okay. You know, and... People, you know, in in court and drug court and felons and people coming out of prison. And I mean, I had a a very colorful staff and these people showed up and worked harder and got the job done. I mean, it was unbelievable, though. I mean, they worked doubles. They showed up, you know, every stereotype that comes along with second chance is was completely destroyed that weekend. Fair enough. So it was a victory. It was really cool. And I I saw what I was capable of. I saw okay. what they were capable of. So it really just, my heart grew and I... Kept going. Yeah. I mean, and uh, it was, you know, it ebbed and flowed and we got some warehouse contracts and some things out here. Um, and what was crazy about it was that we we're so new out here that we didn't really have a lot of steady work. So I would end up having to build my team from the ground up every single big job I got. So it was like this whole new round of people would come in, we'd get this well-oiled machine going and then we lose the contract. Mm -hmm. So it just, or it would end. Yeah. I mean, it would end or whatever, like for whatever reason, you know, I don't feel like it's anybody's business, you know, because there is a huge stigma yeah. With people in recovery and second chance, you know, people that are parole probation, like, you know, and when in fact they are the hardest working people that I know, there's a huge stigma around it, you know? And, um, so in order to create and sustain work for people, it's important that we stay anonymous, okay. you know, in some sense, you know? And, uh, so I was, I was making sure that people weren't obvious about where we come from and that's just for the protection of my staff. And, and so that, we don't get labeled as that company, you know, mm. because then people don't want to, you know, they don't want to give us work. and yeah, Or we'll try to undercut you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and the main goal here is to make sure that I can provide work for all these kids that are trying, or kid, not necessarily kids, but 
people. persons in recovery trying to get their life together. So you pull off this big event, mm-hmm. right? You get this confidence. Mm-hmm. You just keep going until here? So, yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I just stayed, um, stayed the course, you know? And like I said, work ebbed and flowed for a long time. And um, I had another, another baby. So now I have. And you're, I mean, the listeners may or may not know, but your husband is, is pretty active in the. Mm-hmm. recovery community mm-hmm. he does the shine light stuff mm-hmm. and he works at freedom house mm-hmm. and so i mean while you're working this job that it, it is a service to people in recovery mm-hmm. it's not solely based in recovery i'm sure right i mean i have i i that was not a requirement yeah you know so yeah i i had a lot of people from people would refer their, you know refer their friends from different places that were completely normies mm-hmm. um but it, what I'm saying is like your your husband kind of was like all in with everything he's kind of doing, mm-hmm. like his job, right. his activities. I'm not saying, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You kind of were dabbling. Yeah, I mean, I was. I mean, I was also a full time mom at home. Yeah. So like, I I wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, pretty much what I'm getting at is that you weren't just doing the staffing. You also had this, you know, person in your life who's doing all this stuff. So, I mean, recovery was everywhere. Oh yeah. I mean, recovery is the basis of our lives. Everything else just kind of falls together. I mean, that's the core foundation. Our house lives, breathes, eats. Recovery. Yeah. I mean. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I love it. I mean, this is the one thing that I know the most about, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. From experience, from being exposed to other people in the community that are in recovery. I mean, this is what I know. I speak the language of recovery. You're doing this. You're encompassed in recovery. Mm -hmm. Mr. Ingle comes to you. So. Or were there talks before? Like, so. Did you go to him? No, I, I was walking. I was in Sam's Club with my kids. I uh, just recently took on um, more responsibility. Yeah, in your other yeah, job. yeah, yeah. So Freedom House, I help with. I'm. I do some service work for them as well. And so I was in Sam's Club picking up some stuff for Freedom House, and I get this phone call from Rhonda, who's the um, previous previous uh, director, and she says, uh, "You know, I need you to be quiet about this. Nobody really knows yet, but I'm stepping down and I." got your number from Breezy, who is my best friend. She had originally offered the job to her, but she just had twin boys. And so that wasn't very realistic for her. And so she's like, what about Kaylin? And Rhonda was like, oh my God, I never, I didn't even think about that. She'd be great. And so I guess, you know, I was walking through Sam's club and she like offers me this job. And at first I'm like, are you like, are, are you sure you have the right girl? Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? And, um, it goes back to that thing where you have like a little bit of a imposter syndrome. Totally. Where you're like, eh, yeah, I'm like, are you sure? Mm, yep. <laughs> and I have the same thing recently. Forgetting that the past you're two completely and a half, experienced right. and know what you're doing. Yep. <laughs> and forgetting that, you know, working for et cetera has primed me for this exact situation. I've been cooking and working in kitchens for over 10 years and when they offered me an executive chef position I was like are you sure yeah are you sure you know who I am 
Oh, yeah. I am experienced. <laughs> I do know how to cook very well. Yeah. I can balance budgets. Mm-hmm. Okay, then. I'll take it. Yep. <laughs> Same. Yep. And so it took me a minute, and I went home, and I processed it with, you know, she goes, listen, like, take the weekend, you know, it was Friday. At least you got that. They did not do that to me. Yeah. She gets, she goes, take the weekend because really what it is is like at this point, like I said, I'm working from home. I'm stay at home mom. Like there's a lot of variables that going in, go into going to work full time again, right? Childcare and sure. expenses and all kinds of things. And, and, uh, that I didn't have to think about before. Cause I just drug did my kids I wherever I would go. You know, they came to me to my office, et cetera. They came to me with job, like, you know, so I had a lot to think about and, and plus like the imposter syndrome thing, like, can I do this? You know? And my husband looked at me and he goes, are you serious? Yeah. You know, like, yes, you can do this. And he got super excited for me. And, um, I was, you know, being a stay at home mom is not an easy job. And I had a lot of conversations with three year olds and nine month olds and 11 month old, 11 year old all day. So like, I was really excited to get like some adult conversation going and, um, and so I prayed on it all weekend and meditated on it all weekend and called Rhonda up on Monday and told her that I would like to, you know, move forward. And so from that point, I sat down with Joe and her and, and they, you know, interviewed me and we talked a lot about what the goals are here at APG and, um, what that looks like. I asked them, you know, what they'd like to see in APG in five years from now. And it was a really great conversation. And, and so they said, you know, here you go, you got the job. So... So what are your goals now that you are? I, um. Still formulating? Yeah, but I have one really strong goal and that is like, I really want APG to be synonymous with the word recovery when it comes to adolescents. Like whenever you have, you know, a brother, sister's cousin's aunt's son who reaches out and is like, you know, struggling with, you know, substance abuse or struggling to sustain recovery, I want them to think of APG immediately. You know, this is a place where they can come to have fun in recovery, to experience, you know, sober living. Mm -hmm. So is that like a branding thing? Like marketing? I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. How do you, how does one do that? Um, I word of mouth. Yes. I think it's, making sure that every person in the, in the Las Vegas Valley knows who we are. Okay. So, I mean, and, and I think that that can take a lot of different forms, like, you know, a lot of high school and, you know, a lot of the high school involvements and resource fairs and which they've already been doing, but I think it's just a matter of like, you know, reaching a little bit farther and a little bit more and, and just doing it your way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, or what you think maybe. Yeah. And I also think it's, it's really representing what we want these kids to feel when they're here. So like being fun and inventive mm -hmm. and thinking outside the box and, um, enjoying life and involved, mm -hmm. involved in community. I mean, that's what it's all about. Ultimately is like, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to raise a person in recovery, mm -hmm. you know? And so the more community involvement there is the better. So I want to be, all up in everybody's business. <laughs> That's the plan. Well, good luck. Thank you. I'm really honored to be a part of Alternative Peer Group. And um, I'd have to say that, you know, if you know anybody, any teenager or person who's, you know, looking for 
a place to come. We're open from four to seven every day and we offer a lot of different stuff too. We have a daytime program for adults. We offer grief counseling and um, craft family services, which is like a family support group for, for people and, you know, parents, siblings and recovery. And so if you're looking for a place, please come and see us. So we are at 900 East Karen. Um, our cross streets are like Maryland Parkway and Karen. We're in the New Orleans Square, which is in Commercial Center. Sure. And uh, where can they reach you online? So <laughs> we are at um, apglv.org. Yep. Dot org. And um, Facebook APGLV. Face, yep. Facebook APGLV, Instagram. All that good stuff. Yeah, we're on all that stuff. So I'd be curious to see what you do with the Instagram page. Yeah, me too. I'm, we're, we're looking forward to that. We have somebody that works specifically with social media. So nice. yeah, we're going to, we're going to, we are going to hit the ground running. Good. So I think we already really have. Yeah. To be fair. They've been doing very good things. Yeah. It's just now handed off to you. Yeah. I mean, they've, they have, like a baton. They have laid the foundation of an, of an amazing vision and I'm just here to continue to cultivate. Yeah. It's really what I'm here for. Like what was it like a triathlon when they passed the baton? They've, they ran a great race so far. Oh my God. Now it's your turn. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're technically winning, so yeah. I'm just going to continue. Well, so. thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I know we did some tangents, but I think that is good. That's all right. I yeah. mean, <laughs> authenticity, right? Right. Okay. All right. Thank you for listening. streaming platforms itunes google play stitcher give us a rating on that itunes apple podcast thing we uh, need them follow us on social media at recover everything go to our website recovereverything.com to tell us a story uh, reach out to us we'd love to hear from you 